0: This is High Stakes, from Gerard, Phillips, Kate, and Hancock.
1: A couple of weeks ago, we ran a conversation between Molly Kate, who's a founding partner and chief innovation officer here at Gerard, Dr. Mark Weneker, who's a partner at the Chartist Group and a primary care internist who leads Chartist's behavioral health practice, and then Dr. Danny Mendoza, a psychiatrist with the Beth Israel-Lahey Health System and an expert in behavioral health integration. In that conversation, we looked at some clinical principles that healthcare leaders can apply to their teams, to patients, and the public to allay fear in this frankly bizarre pandemic world we've been living in. And it was all rooted in a white paper that we published along the same lines. You can find that white paper at gerardinc.com. But as we went through that first conversation, and as things continued moving forward in the vaccine rollout, it became clear that the principles in the white paper applied to vaccine hesitancy as well. There's a whole nother discussion to be had with wenniker and Mendoza about some of the psychology behind hesitancy, and how healthcare providers can sort of guide people rather than push them. So we had that conversation, and this is it. It was one of those podcasts where as a producer, it's kind of perfect because we were all excited for the topic and we had just reviewed our notes. And so when we got on the call, the conversation started naturally and just went from there. As a result, you'll hear Mendoza jumping right into the general question of what do we do about vaccine hesitancy? And then lastly, for full disclosure, we did have a couple of technical glitches. You'll probably notice a couple of spots where the audio changes. It's not bad. It's just different. It's one of those things that happens when you've got people in four different places. As always, please subscribe to the High Stakes Podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and then share this episode with a friend.
2: There is a lot of work that we still can do. And, and and the the key here is that one of the concerns has always been about whether the government is credit, credible enough in its support for the vaccine development that the vaccines can be trusted and i think the key here is to educate just by being transparent and you know it's it's we can say that you know typically it takes 10 to 15 years to create any vaccine and even then there's a lot of failures. But this is a unique situation because with advances in genomic sequencing, we were able to actually come up with the viral sequence of the COVID-19 virus 10 days after the first Wuhan pneumonia episode. I mean, that's absolutely remarkable. And then a few things happen because vaccine research is incredibly expensive but operation warp speed actually helped and then the European commission put in eight billion dollars towards vaccine development and then you got the uk government vaccine task force so three big entities that contributed a lot of funding towards vaccine development and and it's it's this this beautiful harmony of of scientists working together and getting funding for what they're working on together. So, so we've, we've come to this point and we've been at war with misinformation for, for five years and this has magnified the distrust in, in messaging across the board. But moving forward, our best game here is to educate by being transparent and just being laying it down in an itemized fashion, repetitively, as we've, we've talked about before, because that's the only way you can get the message across. But we also have more data because by now it's February and we've vaccinated a lot of, of healthcare providers. That's a data pool that
3: we can now exploit. Yeah. Yeah, I just I wanted to add one thing, just to frame this, Danny's example raises an important point about the information that we communicate. Many of us who are more medically or scientifically oriented are appropriately excited about the scientific advances that have been made to bring these vaccines to the population so quickly. However, for some individuals, perhaps many who are already skeptical about vaccines, they're asking reasonable questions about whether there were corners that were cut to make this happen. If those are people's fears, then it's incumbent on the healthcare industry to address those directly. Why was the development so much faster than with previous vaccines? What safety measures were taken? How are those safety measures the same or different than with other widely accepted vaccines? And as Danny noted, millions of individuals, including healthcare providers, have already been vaccinated. What are we learning about how they're doing?
1: Let's dig into that a bit. And Molly, I, I want to hear your thoughts on this idea of, of, of taking the facts, which are so robust and, and getting stronger every day, and then telling the story around them, applying them in a way that makes sense for people, that they can sort of emotionally invest in them and feel more comfortable because that gap between science slash medicine and the public is not new, as we've talked about, right? So how how does the scientific community begin to package that in a way that helps allay those fears?
0: A couple of thoughts come to mind. You know, it's, we live in a time where people are increasingly distrustful. So we've talked about this before, but there's a national trust barometer that's put out every, every few years. And increasingly, people are are distrustful. And if you think about like macro patterns of how we consume information and synthesize it, we've gotten away from trusting facts and figures because there's so many of them out there, right? And so I I don't think that people know what to trust anymore. And that's a, just a really scary position, I think, for anything, for science, for government, for, you know, being a human being, right? (laughs) Being in business. I mean, And so I think that the art of how to get people to trust you is more complicated than it has been. I think facts and figures are definitely a part of it. But I, and as a former journalist, like, it pains me to say this, but I think in some ways they're not as impactful as they used to be. So I think there's more emphasis on who is sharing the information. So if I think about, okay, well, what do we do about that, right? Um, Because this is a classic example of how facts and figures can really... Once you get into them and you know the truth, you can make better decisions. And so the first thing that comes to my mind is knowing the audience, understanding what people's fears are really about. Um, and I think they look different depending on your race, depending on your gender, your geographic location, uh, a lot of things go into that. So there are different types of fear with different types of segments of the population. And then I think about, well, who do they trust? So. There's been a lot of really interesting conversations in the communications industry around vaccination campaigns, for example, and understanding that, I'll give you an example as part of a call the other day about planning for a very, you know, predominantly African-American community in the Southeast. And our go-to source there that that community said, who's going to influence us to get it? It's our pastor or pastors. It's our churches. You know, that's that's different in different parts of town. so understanding fear, understanding who they, like the root of their fear, really, at a deep level, who do they trust to persuade them? And then I think about facts and figures and information. So I think it's kind of third. And again, I hate to say that, but it's just the reality of today. And then I think it's some really basic things that we talk about a lot. Is it simple? understand. Do we put it at a level where do we draw analogies? Do we draw similarities, metaphors? You know, what are like the really practical kind of tools of the trade uh, to make it as easy as possible first grade level to understand? And that's not presenting people with a lot of data. I see that a lot in the healthcare industry. We're in this age of data, but half the time people can understand what the hell it is because it's presented in such a complicated way and it just misses the mark. So I think we really have to make it like at a kindergartner level for people to understand, you know, what it is and how to use it and how to interpret it.
2: So, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by, what, by something that Molly had said about information and where you get information. And and, and and the delivery of the news, quote unquote, there's a breaking news quality, which is a CNN product, which I hate because not every day you have breaking news, but we have to find a way to emulate the breaking news quality of the delivery, because this is what people have gotten accustomed to. So I I guess the quest from our end is to learn from the breaking news cyberspace way that people think about things nowadays and come up with bullets that bite bullets well, that penetrate kind of like the, the coronavirus. I mean, they, they attach, they fuse so that they can replicate. So we need to have our own version of our spike protein in the delivery of the message. And, 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 and I think that's the elusive thing right now. And, and how do we distill all the data that we have so that it's seen as standard, consistent across the board? And how do we also, this is the other thing that we're finding out. Human nature is, it's predictable. People always feel better when you, when they think you're giving them a choice. It's always better. Even though you give them a choice of two almost identical or three identical products, they always feel better knowing that they have a choice.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would just add, add, just getting back to the paper, is that the second principle that we articulated was understanding the reason behind the anxiety. Unpack the anxiety so that we understand what is driving the fear of getting a vaccine, right? And different people have different reasons. Generic messages are just not going to be enough. And the research that Gerard and others have done is providing important insights into why why some people are so reticent to be vaccinated. We have to be able to focus our messages to address what we're learning.
1: Yeah. So, Mark, thanks for that. Let's. I want to dig into one particular reason for the fear, and we found this in the survey that we just fielded that we've just published. This was a national survey, representative of the country as a whole, and it's it's the third in a series that we've run, just looking at at the general public's um, perception of and sort of interaction with the healthcare system, and. When we did this for the second time, the last time, previous time in August, we found that just over 50%, it was around 54%, 55% of people were likely to get the vaccine when it was available. And so, of course, this was before it was available. So just over half, which is consistent with other findings, you know, that other folks have, have found. And we found the exact same number this time around. It's 54%. So 46% of people are unlikely or on the fence or not going to do it. And we dug deeper in that and found that of those who were skeptical of, of receiving the vaccine, 59% are worried about the vaccine side effects. And that number is up 12 points from August. So, well, and then another piece of that is that the, the second most common reason cited was the worry about getting infected from the vaccine. That number in January was 14%, but that was down eight points from August. So fear of getting infected has dropped which is excellent because it's not going to happen but concern about the side effects has increased significantly that's one specific fear that we dug into and I'd be I'd be curious about what that says and what we can do with that particular information because to some extent time can kind of heal that the more people that get the vaccine and the the fewer you know the, the as low as the rate of side effects is that should help develop confidence but what what are your thoughts on that
3: well, you know, Dan, Dan and I talked about this yesterday, you know, we have to be honest about what side effects people will get mm-hmm. and what percentage will get those. The good news is that we have a growing database, as we've discussed, upon which we can understand the answers to these questions. You know, CNN is regularly reporting the percentage of people who are partially or fully vaccinated. Let's also report on the proportion who have side effects, mild or severe. How does this compare with other vaccines like the flu or pneumococcal vaccine? People also wanna hear details about these side effects. If they're gonna get vaccinated, what does it mean to have a mild side effect or a severe one? How can the symptoms be treated or mitigated? Are the people who are having severe side effects, are they doing okay? Those are, These are all important questions that are reasonable to ask and we should be providing the answers
0: to them. I think there's a lot of brilliance in what Danny said about making sure people have a choice and empowering them to make a good decision. You know, it's kind of like, rather than telling someone like, it'd be really stupid not to get this, which I think is how a lot of us feel, thinking about it from the perspective of giving them the the tools and the set of data points that they need to make a decision. So, you know, in our business, for example, we, it's probably the opposite of science, but we talk a lot about how people make decisions on an emotional basis. They consider facts and figures and information. And, you know, that definitely is a big piece of it, but what causes you to buy something or, you know, make a big decision is, is a large part an emotional decision when it gets down to it. So if I think about it from that perspective, I think that leads to a whole different set of, or I, maybe not different, but an additional set of, of strategies. And it's, It's kind of like what Danny's saying, meeting people where they're at, you have to understand what they're afraid of. So if we know side effects are a fear, then there's some knowledge to gather around what are the side effects in particular they're afraid of, or are they afraid of side effects? So I'm always going to say this, but I just think the more we know about where people's minds are on things and how they feel about things, the better communicators and influencers we can be. So I think... That's part of the answer. I know like even in some of my personal and social circles, I've had friends get the vaccine and that's always a part of the discussion, the side effects and various conspiracy theories on, on what those may and may not be. And so, you know, I don't really think that we're gonna, we're gonna stop that. But if we look at it from the perspective of being transparent, giving people access to information so that they can make a decision. I think that's kind of the, I don't know that I'm really answering your question, but I think that that's that's kind of the best we can hope for in some ways. I don't think people are looking for more information. That's not the issue. There's, There's all the information is out there. There's so much of it, in fact. And I know at times it seems like that's the answer, but I think that people are trying to figure out what's right for them and who to trust and how to make a decision. So, so
2: Molly, you raised a very important point. What is too much information? And I I always uh, think about this when I'm treating an anxious patient. I would say if, knowing you, I'm going to give you the most common side effects, the indications, the possible benefits, but do me a favor, don't read the PDR, don't read the Don't read what the pharmacist is gonna give you. And to your point about the psychology of choices, a lot of them, when they read about the side effects, don't even start it. The very people who need it don't start it. But the other thing about this is this information overload that we've been getting, misinformation overload. A lot of times what's happening right now is that we are used to being stimulated Uh, With this information cycle that we're getting every 15 minutes, it's analogous to our frontal cortex, getting a lot of dopamine stimulation. It's analogous to uh, a cocaine addict no longer having cocaine. Apathy sets in. And the last thing we want is a sense of apathy and learned helplessness, which is the other thing that could happen from having too many choices. So I go to the concept of informed consent or risk-benefit analysis where I say to them, okay, you do have a choice and you can keep on delaying this, but if you have an opportunity, I would suggest that based on what people are finding out, that it's better to be protected with whatever vaccine is being given to you at the moment because the risk of mutation goes down dramatically. And and there's a time factor to this that I think we will be negligent if we never discussed it with our uh, receiving population. The longer you wait, the higher the risk that you might get infected with COVID-19 and the higher the risk that you might have a moderate or severe outcome. Number two, the longer you wait, the more the virus will mutate and then the higher the risk that the current vaccine is not going to protect you. It's your choice.
1: Any closing thoughts, Mark, Molly, Danny, before we we kind of close out? Mark, I'll, I'll start with you.
3: I think the point that we try to make in the paper is that one needs to be planful around addressing concerns about returning back to care, receiving vaccines. How do you utilize what we understand in terms of managing people's anxiety and applying those to a communication strategy is what we've tried to share with, with the public about this, and it, it, it can be successful, but it, it, it's not a one-shot deal. The messages have to be consistent, and you have to be very careful about thinking through who should be delivering those messages, because some people are more trusted than others. So, so I think that's our general message here, and I think it can be applied broadly.
0: I think it's really important, and we didn't talk about it a lot today, but it's a really critical issue, and that is the thinking about this as an ongoing conversation. You know, a lot of times I know with, particularly with executives and particularly in, in organizations that are as complex as healthcare companies and hospitals and health systems, I see a real common thing happen, which is like, well, we told people that, you know, we did a whole campaign on that. And Danny, you talked about this kind of constant flow of information and news and that's out there. You know, I think that that from a communications perspective, we'll really have to, to start thinking about things. This is one thing that, I think was true before COVID, but now it's even more true and will continue to move in this direction is that people, you constantly have to stay in front of them. And that, you know, to think about these these topics, vaccines being a classic example of something that's going to take a very long time um, to get through to some people about it and to keep talking about it. You know, there's going to be new strains, there's going to be new variations, there's going to be new issues, there's going to be news coverage about side effects. And so thinking about communications as something that's continual, A, and then B, as something that people have an opportunity to to engage in. Because now that everyone is a communicator on social media and an influencer, whether we like it or not, people are, you know, they're talking, right? So are you going to shape the conversation on an ongoing basis? Or are you going to kind of dole out information as needed. And I I think if we really want to influence people, we have to be a part of the conversation on on an ongoing basis.